Welcome to this episode of the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. When preparing each episode of the podcast, I use a wide variety of sources. My home library is filled with books about the history of movies, including official publications from the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, and industry-related trade publications like Quigley Publishing's Motion Picture Almanac. Unlike many sources on the internet, these are unaltered publications from their specific time frames, and I will spend time on my vacations scouring used bookstores looking for copies of books I don't have. One of my favorite sources is, well, was, an annual series called Screen World. Originally published in 1949, Screen World was literally a print version of the IMDb decades before the internet was even invented. It was full of glossy photos from the biggest movies of the year, listed all the major players on either side of the camera, and, despite the internet, was still being published every year as late as 2012. Reading one of these annuals really puts the history of the cinema in your hands unlike anything the internet can provide. I have Screen World annuals going back as far as 1956, and I still regularly read them, either for research for this podcast or if I'm looking for something different to watch. And as I've been doing the research for the recent episodes on the Weintraub Company and Jensen Farley Pictures, and for upcoming episodes on Orion Pictures and Canon Films, I keep coming back to 1982 and how really great a year for movies it was. It's easily one of the best years for cinema during my lifetime, and it's definitely my favorite year for the decade. So, with that, I present my favorite year, 1982. 1982 should have been a very good year for me. I was 14, and I was in ninth grade at Will Rogers Junior High in Long Beach, California. In the Long Beach Unified School District in 1982, high schools were only for 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, so I was one of the upperclassmen at my junior high instead of a lowly freshman at what would have been my high school the next year, Woodrow Wilson High. Not that I would have been all that lowly as a freshman, even at 14 I was already over 6 foot tall, and while I wasn't very popular with the ladies, I did have two close friends in Mark and Steve, where I never felt lonely. And life at home was pretty good, too. My father and stepmother were both in real estate, and we lived in a nice duplex that we owned that also had a small one-bedroom house in the backyard, one that was promised to me once I turned 16. My own bachelor pad, even if I was in my parents' backyard and they could see my every coming and going from their bedroom window. My stepmom drove a Mercedes, and my dad drove a 1972 Mustang Mach 1 Fastback with a 302 engine. But that Mustang was going to be mine when I turned 16. Man, I couldn't wait to turn 16. Every weekend, Mark, Steve, and I had a ritual. Friday night after we got our allowances, which were honestly really too generous, we'd ride our bikes to the Jack in the Box on 2nd Street and get a combo meal and pour over the entertainment section of the Long Beach Press-Telegram to see what was playing at the United Artists Marina Marketplace 6, about a two-mile bike ride to the east. It was the only commercial movie theater in the neighborhood. My friends weren't the movie nerds I was already becoming, so getting them to bike to the Repertory Art Theater two and a half miles to the northwest to see a couple of older movies they've never even heard of before, well, that was going to be impossible. And then on a Saturday morning, 
we would meet up at the food and drug store in the Marketplace Shopping Center. And yes, that's what it was named, the food and drug store. And we would stock up on candy bars and a couple cans of soda. And then we'd bike over to the other side of the shopping center, lock up our bikes, and buy a ticket for a movie. We really didn't care too much about what movie it was, as long as it was a rated PG and it looked, you know, interesting. Then when that movie got out, we'd individually head up to the bathroom, which was up on the second floor of the theater by the projection booth in the offices, and then we'd individually head into another auditorium to watch something else. We'd usually watch a second movie before heading back to one of our houses to play Atari, but sometimes we'd stay the whole afternoon and watch a third or sometimes even a fourth movie. As long as we were safe and got home in a timely manner, our, we could do whatever we want. Our parents weren't hovering over us at the time. So we might have bought a ticket for a movie like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and then snuck into a movie like Diner. And we never got caught because we never snuck in as a group and we didn't sit together until the end of the previews. We'd find a couple who maybe looked like they could be our parents and sat a couple seats away from them because what 14-year-old wants to sit next to their parents at the movies anyway? And it was easier to get away with because there wasn't any reserved seating yet. Anyway, I graduated from junior high in mid-June, excited for the summer that was coming up. There were so many potentially awesome movies coming out that summer. But then, the morning after my last day of school, and the day after my dad took me to my first ever live concert, Jimmy Buffett, my mom was at our front door ready to pick me up to spend the summer with her, which I was not ready for because I wasn't supposed to be spending the whole summer with her. She had recently moved about 300 miles away in a small suburban township outside of Santa Cruz called Aptos with her new boyfriend, and I was supposed to be heading up there after the 4th of July for about a month, but that was still weeks away. But I packed up a bag and made the drive with my mom to her new home. So instead of hanging out with my friends all summer, I was alone in a new town where I'd never been before and didn't know anyone. My mom and her boyfriend, Patrick, had opened up a deli in the small town next to Aptos called Patrick's SoCal Deli Cafe, where I would wash dishes and make sandwiches all day and get paid the minimum wage of $3.35 an hour. And I'd get to make my own lunch every day that I worked, so things weren't all that bad. And one of the regulars at the cafe was Patrick Simmons of the Doobie Brothers. And since my mom's boyfriend was also a guitarist of some local note, there would be regular jam sessions during lunchtime, which made the place kind of famous a little bit locally. Washing dishes and making sandwiches wasn't exactly fun, especially for a spoiled 14-year-old who wasn't accustomed to working outside of his regular chores at home. But I was making a couple hundred dollars per paycheck, and I had my weekends free. So I leaned in hard to movie-going that summer. There were eight movie theaters in the general Santa Cruz area that were readily available to me. The Rio Theater was the largest. It was a single-screen theater that sat 938 people. And it had one of those old-fashioned freestanding box offices, and it always played the biggest movies. When I arrived in Santa Cruz that summer, E.T. had just opened at the Rio. When I left nine or ten weeks later, E.T. was still playing at the Rio. There was the 41st Avenue Playhouse in another suburb called Capitola. It had three medium-sized screens and often played the next biggest films. Then there was the Aptos Twin, which had 
one large theater that you entered on the right side of the lobby and a smaller theater that you entered from the left. And then in downtown Santa Cruz, there was the Riverfront Twin, which also had one large screen and one small screen. And then the Del Mar, an older theater that had been converted from one theater with a balcony to four theaters when the balcony was closed off and a wall was stuck down the center of the whole damn thing. Downtown Santa Cruz also had the Nickelodeon, a four-screen theater devoted to art house films, and the Sash Mill, a single-screen repertory theater not unlike the art theater back home. And then there was the Capitola Theater right off the beach. It was built in 1948 out of an old Quonset hut purchased from military surplus. And the Cap, as it was affectionately known, was a single-screen theater that showed double features of recent movies at a greatly reduced price. The lady who ran the theater was Audrey Jacobs. She ran the theater, she booked the movies, she sold the tickets at the box office every night, and she did the theater recording every week. She was the cap, and she was beloved throughout the county. There was also the Skyview Drive-In, but since I was 14 and couldn't drive yet, I wouldn't be spending a whole lot of time there. And because Santa Cruz had a really good public transportation system at the time, it was really easy to get around to any of those theaters. A typical day for me when I wasn't working would be to take the bus to downtown Santa Cruz, walk a few blocks to Atlantis Fantasy World, spend some time checking out the latest comics, even though I only collected Star Wars and ROM the Space Knight. Then I'd see a movie at the Del Mar and Door the Riverfront and or the Nickelodeon, then head back to the Capitola Mall and spend some time at the arcade playing pinball for a while before heading back home. On the days that I was working, I'd usually catch a movie at the 41st Avenue Playhouse or the Aptos Twin before heading home. Oh, that comic book store, Atlantis Fantasy World. If you've seen The Lost Boys, you know the store. Atlantis Fantasy World was the uh, comic book store that was owned by the Frog Brothers' parents. That wasn't a set. That was my comic book store. Sadly, the store was destroyed in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, but the store does still exist to this day. It's still run by Joe Ferreira, and if you ever find yourself in Santa Cruz, stop by and support a great comic book store and a former winner of the Will Eisner Spirit of Comics Award. Toward the end of the summer, I finally learned why I was spending the whole summer in Santa Cruz instead of the originally set single month. My dad and stepmom were separating and they wanted to shield me from what was going to be a very painful time. So I needed to make a decision. I could either stay in Aptos and start at a new school, or I could go back down to Long Beach and stay with my dad, who was now living on his sailboat, and start my sophomore year at Wilson High as I was originally set to do. I went back home to Long Beach, but I was able to work out a compromise with my parents. I would be able to stay in my room with my student-to-be ex-stepmom who lived four blocks from my high school and then spend weekends with my dad on his boat, which was docked downtown at the time, nearly 10 miles away. It would also help my little brother, who was three at the time, to have some sense of normalcy in his life. But things weren't good at home, and most of my friends had already found other friends while I was gone that summer. So I was starting a new school with lots of people I had gone to school with for years, but I was still somehow alone. Things were so bad that on my 15th birthday, I started my first day at Aptos High, a new school where I didn't really know anyone. I didn't get to have a birthday party, although I did make one new friend that day. And eventually I would find my clan at Aptos High during that year, 
and those people are still my clan nearly 37 years later. So I, I guess you're wondering why I'm prattling on about all these personal details. It's because I want to establish just how much the movies have meant to me over the years. The movies have literally saved my life and my sanity at various times during my life, and none more so than during that rather turbulent year that was my life in 1982. It didn't hurt, though, that there were so many damn good movies that got released during 1982. I'm going to break it down into three categories. My top ten, the next level, and then the honorable mentions. My top ten, of course, will be the ten movies that I've gone back to time and time again over the years for comfort, for laughs, for thrills, and for the memories. The next level are films that I love, but I haven't seen in too long and probably should spend some time with them again in the near future. And the honorable mentions are the ones that are still damn good, but I'm okay with not rushing to revisit them again. I'll get to each of them in a little bit of detail. Tidbits I find interesting about the films that I hope you'll find interesting as well. So here are my honorable mentions in alphabetical detail. Brimstone and Treacle, starring Sting and Denholm Elliott, was released in November. It was written by the brilliant Dennis Potter, and it had a quite interesting path to the screen. Potter, best known for writing Pennies from Heaven, originally wrote the script as a BBC teleplay, which was filmed and supposed to be transmitted in 1976, but the then director of television programming at the BBC rejected the final product, claiming it to be nauseating, but brilliant. Potter rewrote the teleplay as a stage play, which opened on London's West End in 1978. The play was such a success on stage that a film version was produced, with Denham Elliott recreating the part that he played in the original and still unseen at that time teleplay, with Sting cast as the showy part of a young suitor for Elliot's daughter, who might actually be the devil. Sting, that is, not, not the daughter. The film is good enough, but it's the soundtrack, which featured three new songs unique to this album from The Police, as well as six songs or spoken word tracks that constitute Sting's first solo recordings that really are the keeper. Class of 1984 was released in August. It's a better movie than it deserves to be, an oft-used critical trope that is still nonetheless true here. Perry King stars as a music teacher in an inner-city school who has to uh, contend with a group of punk delinquents in an ever-increasing cat-and-mouse game that becomes deadly to a fault. A very young Michael J. Fox is amongst the students terrorized by the punks, and Roddy McDowell is one of King's fellow teachers driven mad by the hooligans. It was a moderate hit when it was released, and it certainly helped stoke the fears of, from middle Americans about punk rock. Death Trap was released in March. It was directed by Sidney Lumet, who was on a tear during the early 80s. In a 24-month period, Sidney Lumet directed Prince in the City, Death Trap, The Verdict, which I'll get into later in this episode, and Daniel. Can you imagine any filmmaker working today making four studio films in a two-year time span? Anyway, Death Trap stars Michael Caine, Diane Cannon, and Christopher Reeve in what was probably his single best acting role in a really fascinating mystery with an ending that M. Night Shyamalan wishes he could come up with. It's a film you really want to go into blind 
and let that experience happen to you. Gandhi was released in December. This was the kind of epic filmmaking I had known about from seeing Lawrence of Arabia on TV growing up, but never really had the chance to experience firsthand in theaters as it was being released. And it's hard to believe, looking at Ben Kingsley, that he was only 38 when he started filming this movie. It was also the first time I had gone into a movie that had an intermission. Now, yeah, it was a worthy Best Picture winner, but it would not have been my choice for the Best Picture of 1982, then or now. Hammett was released in October. This is the first American studio film from Vin Vendors, and it's a rare starring role for the criminally underused Frederick Forrest as writer Dashiell Hammett, who finds himself getting ensnared in a mystery that could have been ripped from the pages of one of his own novels. It's a decent movie that gets a bad rap because of the behind-the-scenes drama that surrounded the making of the film, in which the first cut of the film was rejected by the distributor and then was mostly reshot. We'll never know what that original cut was like. Vender says that all the materials were junked and have been lost to time. Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Danes was released in October. Lou Adler, the manager of Cheech and Chong, who directed their breakout hit Up in Smoke, trades stoners in for disaffected teens in this now classic film about three teenage girls who formed a punk band. 15-year-old Diane Lane and 13-year-old Laura Dern have their first major roles here as two of the three girls, and they are backed up by Christine Lottie and Ray Winstone, in addition to Paul Simonin of The Clash, Paul Cook and Steve Jones from The Sex Pistols, and Fee Waybill from The Tubes. The soundtrack includes a song called All Washed Up that features Simonin, Cook, and Jones playing together in a punk supergroup that maybe could have been awesome had they played more together. Missing was released in February. Greek filmmaker Costa Gavras, best known for the political thriller Z, made his American studio debut in this fact-based drama about an American reporter, Charlie Hormer, who disappears during the bloody coup led by Augusto Pinochet in Chile in the early 1970s. Jack Lemmon plays Horner's father, and Sissy Space is Horner's wife. It wasn't a big hit, and it can be a rough watch, but it did win the Palme d'Or at Cannes and was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Jack Lemmon for Best Actor, Sissy Spacek for Best Actress, and it won for Best Adapted Screenplay. Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl was released in June. I've literally grown up with Monty Python. I was almost seven when the series started airing on our local PBS station in 1974, and my father and I watched every single episode, multiple times. The following year, Holy Grail was released into theaters, and it was the first R-rated movie my father allowed me to see. With him, of course. So by the time Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl opened, I had already been enjoying their brand of comedy for more than half my life. I knew many of the skits by heart, which I happily quoted or sang along to with what was happening on screen. Night Shift was released in July. It's amazing to look back at this film and see how much different it is now than what it was supposed to be then. It was supposed to be the movie that segged Henry Winkler from a popular character actor on a television show to a leading man on the big screen. And as good as Henry Winkler is here, he has the misfortune of having Michael Keaton cast as the wise guy to his straight man. While the film wasn't a major success, it did help make Keaton a star, and it also helped Shelley Long get noticed enough to be cast in a little television series later that year called Cheers. 
It was also Ron Howard's first studio movie as a director, and it's fun to see how far he's come as a filmmaker over the past 37 years. The Thing was released in June. The Thing was one of the best sci-fi horror films ever made, but I'm really not that big a horror fan. What I really like about The Thing is its use of practical effects. As I've gotten older, I've become less a fan of CGI effects because, for myself, if there truly is no limit on what you can imagine, you'll probably lose yourself in trying to make something look cool instead of look good. As an example, I point to the fight sequence between Superman and Zod towards the end of Zack Snyder's otherwise passable 2013 film Man of Steel as what can happen when a filmmaker has no limitations to what they can commit to. It is John Carpenter's best film, and it is Kurt Russell's best performance, but I really have no desire to visit it again. Erg, A Music War, was released in May. It's a concert film that featured a number of up-and-coming punk and new wave bands from both sides of the Atlantic. And even though it wasn't that big of a hit, it was somehow a movie that every single member of my clan had seen in theaters that year, even though the film didn't really get that big of a release. Uh, and who can blame them? In order of appearance in the movie, The Police, Wall of Voodoo, OMD, Oingo Boingo, Echo and the Bunnymen, Jewel Holland of Squeeze, XTC, Klaus Nomi, The Go-Go's, Dead Kennedy, Steel Pulse, Gary Newman, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, The Cramps, Devo, Gang of Four, X, and U UB40. And that's just the bands most people know. One of my favorite performances in the movie is by a totally obscure band called Invisible Sex, an eight-member band dressed in hazmat suits with silver face masks on them, singing a song called Valium. It's not a very good song, and there's no evidence of this band ever existing before or after their performance in the movie. And considering how much talent was coming out of the British punk, ska, and new wave scenes at the time, one has to wonder if there was someone who did become famous in another band hidden under one of those masks. You can find every performance from the movie on YouTube, or you can order a made-to-order DVD from Warner Archives. Young Doctors in Love was released in July. After years of directing on a variety of television shows, Gary Marshall made his featured directing debut with this farcical comedy that spoofed a number of popular soap operas at the time, especially General Hospital. And since this was a production of ABC Motion Pictures, a number of actors from the various ABC soaps appeared in small parts here, including a number of actors from General Hospital. Michael McKean and Sean Young stars the titular young doctors who are indeed in love, and they are supported by Harry Dean Stanton, Dabney Coleman, Pamela Reed, Michael Richards, Taylor Negron, Patrick McNee, Rick Overton, Saul Rubinick, and, being a Gary Marshall movie, Hector Elizondo. It's silly and it's stupid and it's regularly funny. The next level movies are the movies that I've sought out multiple times over the years. Creepshow was released in November. Yes, a horror movie directed by George A. Romero, written by Stephen King, with effects by Tom Savini, was released after Halloween. And weirder still, a film featuring the talents of three of the top horror talents was rejected by every studio in town when the first idea was going around. The only company that was willing to finance Creepshow was United Film Distribution, 
which was an arm of the United Artists Theatre Company, then the largest theatre chain in the nation. And in order for them to put the money up, Romero had to sign a three-picture deal with them, one of those films needing to be the third film in the Dead series, which would become 1985's Day of the Dead, which could go out to theaters unrated because a theater company was releasing it themselves, and they didn't have to worry about theaters not wanting to play an unrated film. But that's another story for another time. But once Creepshow opened and became a success, Warner Brothers purchased certain rights for the film after the fact, including taking over the theatrical distribution, which is why you often see Warners being listed as a distributor and not United Film Distribution. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid was released in March. In March of 1982, I was a bunning cineast. I previously mentioned the art theater in my hometown of Long Beach. In the 1980s, it was one of those repertory theaters that would have a monthly calendar of shows that would get out of the local store. And on the first of every month, I'd hit Dodd's Bookstore on 2nd Street on my way home from school to pick up that month's calendar, circle the films I wanted to see, and stuck it up on the fridge. And my father indulged my interest in the movies, so he'd take me at least once a week to see one of those double features. Some shows would be recent movies like The Year of Living Dangerously and Victor Victoria, and some would be older classics featuring the likes of Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. And at 14, I thought Steve Martin was the best comedian around, and I knew what it meant that Steve Martin was in a movie directed by Carl Reiner. The Jerk had been one of my favorite movies, and I'd easily seen it a couple dozen times, thanks to cable channels like Showtime or HBO. Yet, my little 14-year-old mind wasn't quite prepared for this crazy mashup of noir and comedy and mystery and Steve Martin and Lana Turner, Fred McMurray and James Cagney. It actually took me a second screening later that year at the Capitola Theater to really appreciate what Reiner and Martin and co-writer George Geip had done. And as I write this, I'm thinking I need to buy it on Blu-ray and watch it again. It, it has been far too long. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was released in August. I was interested in the film because I was about to enter high school, but I first learned about the film not from a trailer, but from that Jimmy Buffett concert I had talked about earlier, when he played a song he had on the soundtrack. And talking about an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the best casting of up-and-comers at just the right time. You've got Nicolas Cage, Phoebe Cates, Anthony Edwards, Jennifer Jason Lee, Kelly Maroney, Taylor Negron, Sean Penn, Judge Reinhold, James Russo, Eric Stoltz, Forrest Whitaker, Amanda Weiss. Wow! Fast Times accurately captures the insanity that high school can be, and it probably should be required viewing for every incoming freshman the day before they start high school. First Blood was released in October, and it was the antithesis of the overbloated bullshit that was Rocky III, which now has almost become completely tainted by the overbloated bullshit that has become the Rambo series. This version of John Rambo is, in my opinion, Stallone's single best performance, and it was great to see Richard Crenna and Brian Dennehy have some career stability thanks to its success. Now, if we can only go back in time and convince Stallone and the producers to let Rambo die at the end of First Blood as he did in the original novel. 48 Hours was released in December, and it's hard to believe that Nick Nolte got first billing over Eddie Murphy. Murphy was the face of Saturday Night Live at the time, 
And about the only reason the show even survived during those dark days after Lorne Michaels and the original cast had left two years earlier. And it's even clear from the original trailer who the studio thought was the star of the movie, and a star he really did become. Murphy had another massive success with Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places, which was released six months to the day after 48 Hours, while Nolte wouldn't have another hit for three more years with Paul Mazursky's Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Murphy would go supernova in 1984 with Beverly Hills Cop, while Nolte's last hurrah as a bankable star was in 1991 when he had Cape Fear in the Prince of Tides in theaters. Halloween 3, The Season of the Witch, was released in October. Of all the Halloween movies, this one is my favorite. The story itself is gleefully evil, the small nods to the previous films in the saga clever, and the ending is brutal and wonderful. Sadly, the film is considered a failure, which it simply was not. It was made on a budget of $2.5 million, and the film grossed nearly six times that amount. But because it earned about half of what Halloween 2 had made the year before which itself had earned back about half of what the original had earned in 1978, and lacked both Michael Myers and Laurie Strode, the film was often held in contempt by those who couldn't allow a Halloween movie to exist without them. Personally, I would have loved to have seen a Halloween horror anthology movie series, one that would have brought new ideas and new directors to the movies, instead of the same old boogeyman over and 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 over again. Was that enough overs? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nope, missed one. And over again. Whew, there. Poltergeist was released in June. I'm already planning on talking about Poltergeist a bit more in our upcoming episode about Steven Spielberg as writer and producer in the 80s. But for now, what I will say about this film is holy shit, what an effective horror film. There's maybe about five or six horror films since that have been effective in its ensuing 37 years. Richard Pryor, Live at the Sunset Strip, was released in March. You don't need me to tell you how funny Pryor was as a stand-up comedian. This was his concert movie after that infamous incident where he lit himself on fire while freebasing cocaine. And it is without a doubt his best comedy set. Very few comedians would ever be able to mine laughs out of their own pain as well as Pryor could. And you'll equally howl and cry at his genius, and weep at how poorly his film career never quite captured his brilliance. Ironically, the show was shot at the Hollywood Palladium, which, while being on Sunset Boulevard, is about two and a half miles east of the official start-slash-end of the Sunset Strip at Hollywood and Crescent Heights. But I do remember the first time I saw it, it was on the top of a twin bill at the Palace Theater in Long Beach with my father. And the B picture on that double bill was the truly lousy Canadian horror film Humongous, which my father dragged me out of about 20 minutes into because it really is that bad. The Secret of Nim was released in July. It would be the first major modern challenger to the Disney as Animation King throne, appropriate for a film made by a bunch of former Disney animators. It is a beautiful and lush throwback to that golden age of animation and its moderate box office success, despite almost zero promotion from its distributor, would set up director Don Bluth's next film, An American Tale, which really did change the direction of animation for the next decade. 
We'll also be talking about that film a bit more in our Steven Spielberg as producer episode. Smithereens was released in November. My personal obsession with Richard Hell started with this Susan Seidelman movie. Hell wasn't a great actor, but he had a great presence. And as I learned more about him and how he singularly influenced punk rock on a myriad of levels, my admiration for him grew. Here he's a co-star to Susan Berman as a young woman from New Jersey who keeps getting involved with the wrong people as she tries to follow the punk scene from New York to Los Angeles. Seidemann would go on to make Desperately Seeking Susan, which would also feature Hell in a small role as Susan's dead boyfriend. The film would be the first independent American film to be invited to compete for the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and it would introduce the East Village scene to people who would never otherwise come within a thousand miles of New York City. Sophie's Choice was released in December. Meryl Streep would deservedly win her second Academy Award for her role as the concentration camp survivor with a heartbreaking secret. I first saw Sophie's Choice when I was 15, and it's hard to admit, I wasn't all that impressed with it then. But the strange thing is, I can't really tell you why anymore. I had to revisit the film back in 2013 when I finally started college to earn a degree, and I was taking a film appreciation class as my arts elective. I was transfixed by the film this time, how it deftly found a lot of love and humor within the lines of a Holocaust survivor story, while not shying away from the incredible demons both Sophie and her lover Nathan, played by Kevin Klein, were trying to keep hidden. Alan J. Pakula was the right director for this adaptation of the Williams Dyron novel, and it was the last great triumph of filmmaking after Clute, The Parallax View, All the President's Men, and Starting Over. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was released in June, and I've never been a Trekkie. I've never liked the original series, and I really didn't like the first movie. I hadn't even planned on seeing Khan when I first heard about it. I vaguely remembered who Khan was, and it wasn't like I would, could just go to a shelf and pop a tape of the episode in or stream it on my computer. And I certainly wasn't going to be scanning the weekly television listings to see if Space Seed was going to be playing on whatever channel ran the reruns. But the poster looked kind of cool, and then the re- preview looked interesting. And then the reviews started coming out, and the reviews were good. So when Tron came out a few weeks later, I bought a ticket for that, and then I snuck into Khan, which was playing in the other theater of the Aptos Twin. And I really liked it. I teared up a bit at the end about the big sacrifice, even though I didn't really care much about that character before. And the next day I went back to the Aptos Twin, which was literally across the freeway from where my mom and her boyfriend were living at the time, and easily accessible via a poorly protected railroad bridge over the highway. And I bought a ticket for Star Trek II to watch it again. Of course, I then snuck into Tron to watch that again. I'll talk about Tron a little bit later in the episode. But strangely, I wasn't looking forward to the search for Spock two years later, even though I knew it was a direct continuation of this movie. And I ended up really liking that one, too. And then I wasn't looking forward to The Voyage Home, even though I knew it was a direct continuation of The Search for Spock. And I ended up really liking that one, too. Suffice to say, I wasn't looking forward to The Final Frontier, either. And I was thusly rewarded with an unpleasant, disjointed mess that churned me off of Trek forever. 
Victor Victoria was released in March. Blake Edwards was a great director who hurt his own image by making a lot of schlock. It's hard to think that the man who helped bring the Pink Panther series in Days of Wine and Roses is also responsible for absolute shit like Skin Deep and The Man Who Loved Women. Victor Victoria was so ahead of the curve in terms of its acceptance of gay characters in accepting everyone for who they were that I honestly believe the film is partially responsible for my own not really giving a shit about anyone's sexual orientation. It beautifully presented a gay lifestyle as something normal. I was a little too young to be paying attention to the uproar earlier over movies like Cruising or Partners, and if I knew any gay people in my life, I wasn't aware of it yet. But the film had the right influences on a young person at the right time in their lives. And Julie Andrews is amazing. James Garner is is great. Robert Preston is fucking incredible. And Alex Karras proved that a football player could become a good actor. As for my top ten... Blade Runner was released in June. Blade Runner isn't just in my top 10 movies of 1982, it's in my all-time top 10. It's a movie I've been having an obsessive relationship with over the years. The Criterion Collection Laserdisc was my first Laserdisc purchase. I've read Paul N. Salmon's essential tome on the film, Future Noir, at least 20 times. My very first AOL screen name was B26354, which was Deckard's badge number. I've seen every known edit of the film except for the San Diego test screening cut, and I'm told there were only 51 sheets printed by Warner Brothers for the theatrical release of the final cut, and I have one of them. I've watched every second of every bonus feature, listened to every commentary. I could watch Blade Runner every week and never be bored by it. Ah, but which version? The final cut is the best version of the movie, and it's almost always the one I watch when I watch it now. But we're talking about 1982 here, so let's talk about the theatrical cut. I wasn't really bothered by the narration. I don't really care if Deckard is a replicant or not, although I do have my opinion on that topic. But that's not what the movie is about for me. The storyline is probably the least important part of the movie for me. And it's not about the acting either, even though the cast is uniformly excellent. What I'm drawn to is the world that Ridley Scott and his team built for the movie. Very few science fiction movies were as beautiful as they were dirty, and almost no one had done the levels of production design and set decoration to that level of meticulousness before. And I love the practical effects. I love how Scott and his company came up with the concept of what my home city might look like today, even if it didn't really come to pass the way they envisioned. And it's mind-blowing for me to be sitting here talking about Blade Runner in September of 2019, knowing that the movie will no longer be a future noir story in less than two months. But you better believe that once I'm done editing this podcast, I'm going to be watching that original theatrical cut. Because I fucking idolize this movie.
Diner was released in April, and it is practically a perfect movie. Four top performances from from some of the best young actors working at the time, from a first-time director who knew his material so well, it feels like you're tapping directly into someone's memories, like going through that portal into John Malkovich's mind. Watching it today, it's kind of heartbreaking to see how Steve Gutenberg and Mickey Rourke would never be as good as they were here, even with all their successes after. And because of this film, Diner introduced us to Ellen Barkin, who really deserved a much better career than the one she had, and it solidified the magic that was and still is Daniel Stern. You know how much people lose their shit over Jeff Goldblum? That's where Daniel Stern should be in the public consciousness. 40 years of great performances and some pretty damn good movies. Daniel Stern, if you're listening, you're more than just another fucking observer. You're fucking awesome. Gregory's Girl was released in April. If you've never heard of Scottish filmmaker Bill Forsyth, or only know him from Local Hero, please do yourself a favor and seek out his movies. His entire 1980s output is fucking genius. 1984's Comfort and Joy is his best of the lot. It's even better than Local Hero. And I love Local Hero. But Gregory's Girl is a great place to start. It's about a young man who falls in love with the girl who replaces him on the school soccer team, completely unaware of the girl who's in love with him. It's a simple story, told beautifully, and it became an organic worldwide sensation grossing more than $25 million on a budget of just about 200,000 pounds. My favorite year was released in September. Yeah, this episode is named after one of my favorite movies of the year. When I think of Peter O'Toole, I think of four roles. T.E. Lawrence, the titular character from Lawrence of Arabia. Jack Gurney, the 14th Earl of Gurney, the paranoid schizophrenic who thinks he's Jesus Christ in the ruling class. Alan Swan, the sadistic filmmaker in The Stuntman. And Alan Swan, the Errol Flynn-like actor in My Favorite Year. None of those characters really resemble any of the others, which just showed how versatile an actor Peter O'Toole was. And never did he seem to have as much fun on screen as he did here, playing a drunk has-been actor who must be babysat by a junior writer of a variety show that the actor is slated to appear on that week. It's just a whole lot of fun. And I've come to appreciate it more in the ensuing years as I've learned more about its backstory. First-time director Richard Benjamin was just getting started in show business as a page at NBC around the same time as the movie takes place. Mel Brooks, the executive producer of this movie, was a writer on the Sid Caesar show, Your Show of Shows, around the same time, when Errol Flynn really was booked to be a guest on one of those episodes. And he's partially the basis of the character of the junior writer in this movie, although Brooks says Flynn never did any of the things Alan Swan does in this movie. Pink Floyd the Wall was released in August, and director Alan Parker did the nearly impossible task of turning Pink Floyd's landmark allegorical album into a coherent movie event. Bob Geldof, the lead singer of the Boomtown Rats, might not have been the obvious choice to be the lead actor, but he does an incredible job, considering he's not an actor. Well, I guess a rock star doesn't really need a lot of acting ability to play a rock star, but still. I know how to play bass and drums, and I suck at playing bass and drums on rock band. 
And make sure to keep an eye out for Bob Hoskins, who shows up very briefly as the doctor who gets Pink ready for the big show. was released in April. When The Road Warrior came out, I, like many others, was not aware of Mad Max. So I, like many others, was not aware that this was a sequel. And the way that it starts, it doesn't really matter too much if you've seen Mad Max or not. There's a minute of footage from the original film in the prologue, but otherwise it's its own movie that only has one character to signify any connection to the other film. The film made Mel Gibson a global movie star, and it kick-started a new wave of action-oriented dystopian sci-fi, which we really haven't quite recovered from. And it's possible, even probable, that sooner than we think or hope, the fiction part of the Mad Max series is going to become fact, in the way that we like to joke that Idiocracy is becoming a documentary. There really is a finite amount of crude oil left on our planet, And that number is shrinking by the day. It's estimated that our planet could completely run out of fossil fuels within 50 years at its current extraction rates. And that won't affect most of us. I'm 51 years old now. I'm probably not going to be alive in 50 more years. And I don't have any children to worry about. But I do have nieces and a nephew I love dearly and for whom I want there to be a planet for when they're my age now. I don't want us as a society to run out of fossil fuels and then wonder, oh, what now? That kind of shit really does keep me up at night. Tootsie was released in December. I grew up a lot in those nine months between Victor Victoria and Tootsie. Moving to a hotbed of liberalness like Santa Cruz will do that to a teenager. Women's studies were everywhere then, and my mom, having been burned by Scientology during the 1970s, dived into the deep end of female empowerment, which is not a complaint, it's just an observation. And Tootsie really was a major push for feminism at that time in the American mainstream, even if the film's feminist savior is a white male pretending to be a woman because he needs a job. It was just so strange to see Dustin Hoffman do comedy at that time. He's got great timing, and his moments with Bill Murray are delightful as are Jessica Lange and Terry Garr and especially Charles Durning. One can only imagine what this film would have been like had it been directed by Hal Ashby, who was attached to direct the film before Sidney Pollack, or if it starred Peter Sellers, who had been offered the part before Hoffman. Tron was released in July. Tron is admittedly not a great movie. The directing is pretty subpar for a big-budget studio film. The st- story doesn't make a lick of sense, but damn, the effects were pretty extraordinary for its time. Tron was my introduction to the coolness that was Jeff Bridges, and my love for it now, I am not afraid to admit, is purely nostalgia. And I don't care. I loved it then, and I love it now, even as I acknowledge every single one of its many flaws. The verdict was released in December. I found the movie interesting when it came out, but I wouldn't truly appreciate the only time director Sidney Lumet 
writer David Mamet and actor Paul Newman would work together until years later. This drama about an alcoholic ambulance-chasing lawyer who gets an unexpected shot at redemption is everything great movies used to be during that time, with great stars, great filmmakers, and a storyline that goes into some pretty deep and disturbing places. The World According to Garp was released in July. I didn't know much about the movie when it came out. I hadn't read a John Irving novel yet. All I knew is that it was Robin Williams, and that the trailer looked funny, so I was in. It's another one I had to sneak into because of the R rating, and I'm damn glad I did. From those opening moments with the little baby floating in and out of frame as the Beatles play on the soundtrack, you just know it's going to be special. And it was. It's beautiful and sad and hilarious and contemplative, and almost every emotional adjective you can think of. There was a bookstore at the Capitola Book Cafe next door to the theater where I saw this. As soon as the movie was over, I went to the bookstore and I bought the paperback novel of Garp. And the next week, when I was done reading Garp, I went to the bookstore near to my house, Bookworks of Aptos, and bought the Hotel New Hampshire. And then I picked up Setting Free the Bears, and The Water Method Man, and 158 Pound Marriage, because that's all he had published by 1982. And every time Irving came out with a new book, I'd pick that one up too. It's a high compliment to a movie that I say it made me a better reader. And if you've never read John Irving, do yourself and pick up one of his books. I'm fairly certain you'll be picking up more. But I'm talking about the movie here. This movie gave Glenn Close her career. It gave John Lithgow his career. And it really gave Robin Williams his career. It showed that he was more than just a manic wild man but a truly sensitive soul who could find the right beat for each moment. More than Popeye, more than Adrian Cronauer, more than John Keating, and more than any other role he would ever play, including Mork, Robin Williams will, for the rest of my life, be T.S. Garp. Terribly sexy, terribly shy, terribly sad. T.S. Garp. I guess I'm going to have to have a fourth list of my favorite films of 1982 that I did not actually see in 1982. So I include them now on this short list of films you should catch if you haven't already. Britannia Hospital was released in December. This was the third movie in a loose trilogy directed by Lindsay Anderson and starring Malcolm McDowell in the role that originally made him famous three years before A Clockwork Orange. Anderson, Britain's modern master of the black comedy, takes on the National Health Service. And while it doesn't match Anderson's previous teamings with McDowell, 1968 IF and 1983's O Lucky Man, in terms of hitting its intended targets, it's still a fascinating watch. And it has a great supporting cast, including Joan Plowright, Alan Bates, Robbie Coltrane, John Gordon Sinclair, and Mark Hamill. Yes, Mark Hamill. Das Boot, the epic German television miniseries that was edited down to feature length for American release, properly gave actor Jürgen Prochnow and director Wolfgang Peterson Hollywood careers. If you can, catch the five-hour original uncut version, which was the most recently released as part of the five-disc set called Das Boot, the complete edition, which also features the 1982 cinematic version, the 1997 director's cut, and the 15-hour audiobook of the original novel. 
Diva, released in April, is a beautifully shot French drama about a postman obsessed with an American opera singer who has never allowed her singing to be recorded. It features one of the earliest film roles of Dominique Pignon as a diminutive hitman known as The Priest, and it's as exciting a film as you'll see from this year. Eating Raoul was released in September. You'll never find a crazier comedy pairing than Mary Warnov and Paul Bartel. Paul Bartel was a genius. He could take a small film with a minuscule budget and make magic happen. You ever see Death Race 2000? It's fucking genius. All those specialty design cars, all those explosions, and a few really good effects. And he did it all on a budget of less than half a million dollars. You ever see Cannonball? Fucking genius. Cross-country filming, lots of explosions, more director cameos than you can shake a clapper at, a script by Don Simpson. Yes, that Don Simpson. And Paul Bartel did it all for less than $800,000. And despite the fact that most of his movies performed very well, often grossing 10 times their cost, he had to go to his parents to raise the $350,000 to make this movie. So, of course, the film became a success, grossing more than $10 million worldwide. Bartel skewers the swinging era of the day. He and his regular co-star, Warnoff, star as Paul and Mary Bland, a starchy couple who object to all carnal acts, who, after Paul loses his job as a wine snob at a second-rate wine shop, resort to killing their rich pervert neighbors for the money in their wallets, and then stuff their bodies in the building incinerator. It's high camp, a whole lot of fun, and was released as part of the Criterion Collection a few years ago. It shouldn't be too hard to find. Fitzcarraldo was released in October. Werner Herzog was everything Paul Bartel could never be. Tall, European, handsome, and could get the craziest movie ideas financed. Where Bartel had to struggle to raise $350,000 for his little comedy, Herzog could tell his financier he needed $8 million to make a movie in the Peruvian jungle about a real-life rubber baron who wanted to build an opulent opera house in the middle of the jungle, and he'd get it. He wants to film his crew transporting a 320-ton steamship over a steep hill because it would make for good cinema? No problemo. And it did make for good cinema. You may never have seen Fitzcarraldo, but even the most casual film fan likely knows that sequence. It's a damn good movie, and it's another one you can find from the Criterion Collection. Francis was released in December, and Francis is a hard movie to watch. But it is worth one viewing. Jessica Lange, in what is still probably the best role of her great career, plays 1930s actress Frances Farmer, who suffered from mental illness and was treated brutally during her stay in an institution in the 40s vividly detailing the beatings, shock therapies, rapes, and eventual lobotomizing she endured before her release in 1950, Frances is not the standard glossy Hollywood biopic. Uh, it's a shame that Lang won her Oscar in 1982, not for this film, but for supporting actress for Tootsie. She really was that good. But it's also hard to fault the winner for Best Actress that year, because Meryl Streep was that much better. It was also on the set of Francis where Lang and co-star Sham Shepard would ignite their romance, which lasted for 26 years. The Long Good Friday was released in April. 
And Bob Hoskins is absolutely mesmerizing as a British gangster. He might have been short, balding, and stocky with a really thick accent, but between this and Mona Lisa, you knew that he would become some kind of star. He had that indefinable X factor that a tall, pretty boy could never have. And this would definitely make for an interesting double feature with uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The Missionary was released in November. Michael Palin was always my favorite python. There's just something about how he can walk that line between straight man and wise guy, sticking with one until he needed to become the other, that makes me love him more than the other pythons. And rarely was that tightrope between the two comedy tropes walked as effortly as Palin did in The Missionary, a comedy he not only starred in, but wrote and co-produced with his longtime friend George Harrison. Palin stars as a priest who, after 10 years in Africa, is assigned to set up a mission to rescue the women of the evening who frequent the London Docklands. No other pythons appear in the film, and Palin doesn't need them. He's already supported here by Maggie Smith, Trevor Howard, Denim Elliott, and a very young Timothy Spall. If you love the pythons but have never seen The Missionary, try finding it at your local library since it currently is not available to stream online. Moonlighting was released in September. Jeremy Irons plays a master electrician from Poland who leads a four-man team that is hired to go to London to renovate a house. He's the only member of the team who speaks English, and he finds himself in the untenable position of having to keep his co-worker spirit high as the money runs out and their homeland goes under a mass upheaval. Directed by the great Polish director Jerzy Skolomowski, Moonlighting was history as it was unfolding, fascinating and thrilling, and really showed audiences, even more than the French lieutenant's woman the previous winter, just how great an actor Irons was. Q, the Winged Serpent, was released in October, and I wish I could say I knew who Larry Cohen was at the time, having seen It's Alive, or God Told Me To, or It Lives Again, but Q would be the first Cohen I'd see, although not in theaters. That honor would go to the stuff, and I hope to someday catch Q on a movie screen, because as crazy good as it might have been on a VHS tape playing on a 28-inch CRT TV screen in 1983 or 1984, it has to be that much better in its proper aspect ratio on a decent-sized movie screen. Cohen regular Michael Moriarty stars alongside David Carradine, Richard Roundtree, and Candy Clark as a petty crook who sees a payday when he stumbles across the lair of a winged demon who is terrorizing New York City. Being a Larry Cohen movie, the budget doesn't quite cover the vision Cohen had in mind for the film, but it has a whole lot of heart in it, and some new viewers should really be charmed by the lo-fi effects it took to bring the title character to life. Quest for Fire was released in February. It was fantasy without wizards or magic. It was adventure without a good guy or a bad guy fighting over a magical thing. Well, maybe the fire itself could be considered magical. It's the thing three warriors from a tribe at the start of a human existence is seeking when their previous source of fire is accidentally extinguished. They don't know how to make fire. They don't know how fire started. They only know that they need it and that they need to find it. Ron Perlman makes his feature film debut here, playing one of the warriors. And yes, he's covered in makeup that makes him nearly unidentifiable. 
And if it wasn't for his director here, Jean-Jacques Anoud, offering him a job on the name of the Rose a few years later when Perlman was contemplating quitting acting due to the lack of opportunity since Quest for Fire, we might not know that war, war never changes. Now, you've probably noticed that Rocky III and E.T., two of the biggest hits of 1982, are not on any of my lists. I was never a fan of Rocky III. Even at the age of 14, I knew that there had been too much of a fundamental shift in the tone that betrayed what had made Rocky I and Rocky II so good. Rocky was no longer an underdog story because Stallone was no longer an underdog. And then Rocky IV would be even more of a mess, and the less we say about Rocky V, the better. Stallone would kind of redeem himself with Rocky Balboa, but it would be when he would let go of the reins and let a new group of filmmakers take that series in a new direction that it got good again, at least for one film. It should have ended with Creed, and let's hope that Rocky is retired once and for all now. And E.T., well, and this is going to be a shock to my future guest host, but I've never been that much of a fan. I kind of boycotted E.T. that summer. Like Frank Price, who I mentioned in the recent Steven Spielberg as director episode, I didn't want anything to do with what seemed like a wimpy Disney movie. Even as it broke box office records and racked up critical praise, I didn't see it. And I wouldn't end up seeing E.T. until after it came out on home video six years later. And even then, it was at the insistence of the young lady I was dating at the time, who sort of demanded I watch it with her when she learned I had never seen it. Oh, the things we do for love. And it was okay. Not bad, but not very good either. I really didn't care about Elliot and E.T.'s journey, and I didn't think Keyes was that interesting an antagonist. Spielberg had already done Friendly Aliens, and much better with Close Encounters. I tried watching E.T. again when the special edition DVD came out in 2000, but I still couldn't get into it. It's there, and it has its fans. And that's fine. There were a number of very good films that came out during 1982 that I have not included on these lists for any number of reasons. Horror aficionados might notice the omission of Videodrome. Drama fans might wonder why I didn't include Shoot the Moon. Those affectionate for independent cinema might observe that Chan is Missing is, indeed, missing. There are easily another 30 or so films that I could have included, that I acknowledge are worthy of inclusion, but that I don't have the same passion for. Films like Cat People, The Last American Virgin, Tex, Tempest, Zoot Suit. And there was a lot of truly lousy movies released in 1982. Major studio shit like Megaforce and Firefox, Six Pack and Yes, Giorgio, National Lampoon's Class Reunion, Jekyll and Hyde Together Again, Best Friends, Cheech and Chong are Tough All Over. And there was indie shit like Zapped, Paradise, The Incubus, They Call Me Bruce, The Horror Planet, and most everything released that year by Canon or Troma. There's hundreds of more titles that I could just rattle off of the truly worthless, but most of them have been lost to time, never released on DVD or Blu-ray or to streaming services, unseen today except for the few people who may still own and operate VCRs, and still maintain a collection of 80s kitsch on tape. Thank you for listening. 
The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please, help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help to get the film higher rankings, which help get the show seen by more potential listeners. And, as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on the podcast page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at Filmjerk. The Filmjerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 